16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously, and that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on The Daily Show. This is what you got to think of this podcast as. If The Daily Show is tomato soup, then this podcast is all the toppings you add to make the soup even more warm and delicious. We're the croutons and the crackers and the grilled cheese you eat with the tomato soup. See, now you're all cozy and you got the perfect ratio of liquid and carbs. That's what this podcast is. I'm Roy Wood Jr., Wait, Today wait, wait. we're we're, the, we're crackers. <laughs> Why we gotta well, be crackers? Bob, Bob the drag queen. We are, <laughs> we wheat crackers. Can, yeah, can we be whole grain? Let, let me let me be a let me be a uh, one of them a, a, a rye. What's the dark ah. bread? <laughs> I know what you're talking let me, about. Let me be a, let me be a pumpernickel cracker or something. I want to be a pumpernickel. <laughs> that is the voice of our guest, Bob the Drag Queen, and I'm Roy Wood Jr. And today we're talking about a segment on the show with correspondent Dulce Sloan, where she talked about the history of drag and the rise in protests and threats directed at drag events and the number of bills introduced by Republican lawmakers seeking to prevent children from attending drag shows. Let's get a quick clip. Hello, friends. If you know me, you know that I love me some drag. It's like sports, but for people who don't want to deal with any balls, if you know what I mean. But recently, conservatives have been acting like drag is some brand new thing that liberals dreamed up to turn your kids into glitter demons. Now, while 18th century England gave us drag queens, 19th century America gave us drag balls. It's the only time queens colonized the country and made it better. One of the most famous drag performers at that time was a former enslaved African named William Dorsey, the Queen Swan. Dorsey slayed so hard, he went on to become a pioneer of modern ballroom culture. America's drag balls brought the culture to the next level. In Harlem, they became so popular that men and women would come from all over to present their looks to a panel of judges, pageant style. And you know, there's something comforting in knowing that even hundreds of years ago, people were telling someone to their face that they were a messy bitch whose outfit is trash. Ah, the circle of life. Later on in the show, I'll be joined by some additional guests who are going to help me dive into the history of drag. But first, my fellow Pumpernickel is on the (laughs) microphone with me today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> RuPaul. please. <laughs> uh, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 8 winner, host of the podcast Sibling Rivalry and star of HBO's We're Here, which just launched his third season. Mm. Bob the Drag Queen, welcome to Beyond the Scenes. How do you do? I'm well. Thank you so much for uh, for asking. Thank you for having me. And um, and I'm really proud to now, you know, yeah, we, we have our, our third season of We're Here, our Emmy Award winning television show. We're here. I'm very, yes. very proud of it. What I appreciate about that television program is that you don't just tell the story of this world strictly from liberal enclaves, as they like to say. Mm-hmm. I flipped past one day and y'all was in Jackson, Mississippi. I was like, oh, my God. We... Jackson, we pulling up in the South South. That's yes. the South South. That's cheese grit South. And oh yeah. Like, yeah, in places where they call what they call what they call it Mississippi. We was in Mississippi, honey, in Mississippi. <laughs> That's like a drag queen, don't it? What would say Mississippi? <laughs> Mississippi. If you could, as as layman as you can, for our listeners who don't know, explain exactly what drag is this is how i define drag drag is uh blurring the gender line while creating art not all drag queens do numbers not all drag queens dance not all drag queens sing. some drag queens do comedy i know a drag queen named linda simpson who takes photographs 
You know what I mean? Like if you I, people who there are people who do drag and their whole thing is just going to the club and just being pretty and sitting there and hanging out and partying. There are people who go up there and they do. I'm a I'm a stand up comedian, so you know when I do it, me, uh, Bianca Del Rio, um, we do uh, stand up comedy when we do a Flame Monroe. Flame we do stand up comedy when when we do our drag gangster. and yeah, and some drag artists. Um, you know, are 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 women, and some are men, and some are non-binary. Some are cis women, some are trans women, um, some are cis men, some are tra- uh, trans men, some are gay men. There are some straight men out there doing drag. Yeah. I love everyone actually. They don't know they they never heard of a straight drag queen while watching all the <laughs> Tyler Perry movies. I'm like, okay, sure, I'm sure you never heard of a straight drag queen. Okay, got it. Let's let's go back to the beginning for you, just in terms of your introduction into the world of drag. Like, what were some of your experiences? Like early on, like early in the take me back, Bob the Drag Queen 1.0. Well, you weren't even drag queen, you were just Bob, potential drag queen to be. <laughs> so, what when was, I was it really like? young? When I was young, my mom used to actually own a drag bar. My mom owned a drag bar in Columbus, Georgia called Sensations. If you are a Gen Xer or a boomer who was gay in the Columbus, Georgia area in the 90s, you probably went to Sensations. And you probably went to my mom's drag club. And that's where I first uh, heard of and, and you know, encountered uh, the species known as drag queens. When you first started drifting into the world of drag yourself, mm-hmm. did you have representation? Did you have role models? Were there other examples? Or were you navigating this world on your own in a complete fog? So when I started drag, it was 2008, 2009, um, and I was in New York City. I was 22, 23 years old. And, you know, I was really kind of just basing it off of what I see because RuPaul's Drag Race had just started on TV. Now I knew drag from RuPaul and Suong Fu and Priscilla Queen of the Desert and, and you know, movies like that. Ruby Ruby Heart, is it? What's the Ving Rhames movie? Oh, Holiday Heart. Holiday Heart, Holiday Heart. Yeah. Um, but then by this time, it was something called RuPaul's Drag Race. It was less characters of drag and more like actual drag queens. And I thought it was just so interesting. I was like so impressed. So then I went out and I got myself some makeup and I went to the local club in my um, called Lavish Lounge. It used to be in Queens. Also doesn't exist. As we keep talking, most of the clubs I'm going to mention, especially after the pandemic, a lot of them just don't exist anymore. So they, they're only okay. in the minds of, of, of people who were in these spaces. But it was Lavish Lounge in Astoria, Queens. And I remember going and seeing these queens and meeting. I remember the queen I met for the first time ever. Her name was Blackie O was her name. Shout out to Blackie O, who I think is still working in these streets. Like Jackie Onassis. Yeah, her name was was Blackie O-Nasty was her name, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And and I started going out. So it was a little bit of like what I saw on the Internet. You know, there was no Instagram. Instagram hadn't even <laughs> there hadn't even been an Instagram yet. There was no Instagram. Mm-hmm. There was no there was those Facebook and the clubs. And I would go to and, and what I saw in RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, so I was there. Was, there was definitely some representation, um, but it was it was not as easy to find it today. Like it's so easy to find drag queens today. You can't throw a rock without hitting a, hitting a wig. You know. <laughs> you come from the South. You come from Columbus, Georgia, mm-hmm. all the way up to New York. Yes. How much of a culture shift was that, or was it welcome? Because, like, growing up in the South, like, how did, how did the South shape your views on gender roles? And, like, does drag help blur gender lines and challenge strict gender norms? Like, like, talk to me a little bit about the empowerment of it versus where you were, what it was thought of where you were versus where you went as a 22-year-old. It was way more open. So when I was a kid, and I grew up in the South, so I did get a lot of um, gender roles and gender norms placed on me what it means to be a man a lot of my raising instead of instead of focusing on what it meant to be an adult i was often told what it meant to be a man like as if there was this really specific unique set of rules that men had to follow that women didn't have to follow and vice versa women have to do this and men can't do that and i've i kept bucking against that i i I never wanted to go by those rules i wanted i always wanted to like go against that and, and do something slightly different and and challenge and and that wasn't it wasn't just like I want it was just like I just didn't feel comfortable with the idea that I had to do certain things just because of what what's between my legs and how, and what I was born with. So now it's like so now I I literally have to do this. You know what I mean? And as a black man, I already have that societal expectation on me. You know, as a black person, you have to act a certain way. You can't do certain things. I was also given a lot of respectability politics as a young black person. You know, a lot of us were taught like you can't act certain ways in front of white people. Um, that was like ingrained in me. So when I got to New York City, I, I was able to release all of that and um, 
and just do what felt comfortable to me. I guess the cool thing about it is when you're in New York, you're amongst your peers mm -hmm. and you have this degree, you have a support network, if nothing else. Talk just a little bit about that part of it, like because it is not, it's not necessarily always the safest occupation if we're just gonna be 100 about it. Talk to me a little bit about first learning that part of the game and you know, who were the people or just, how was the ecosystem in New York at the time that you were coming up to start developing those types of you know protections? So when I started going out to the clubs, I met just some of the like, I mean, talk about like walking into a, a bar or a club or a place in general and meeting people, you're like, wow. These are really my people. Like, I actually found my people. You know, I started doing drag with Peppermint, uh, Frosty. All these names are going to sound so funny to you all, but to me, they're like old friends. Peppermint, Frosty, Frosty, uh, Frosty Flakes, Honey LeBronx, Ray Scandalo de la Verga, um, Blackie O'Nasty, uh, Chandelier, um, Shaquita. These are all the the people that I, you know, Pixie Abanthora. Track names are legendary. <laughs> this is keep going. These are all the the people that I was doing drag with, and 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 we even had like networks to help each other get to our gigs on time and, and safely. You know, there'd be times where if you you know taking a car in New York City is very expensive. This is even before Ubers. First of all, getting an Uber, getting a car as a drag queen sometimes is impossible. As a black drag queen, forget about it. Then they're never going to stop for you. So you have to take the down so if, if i live in the heights i'll stop by harlem on the way to pick up my friend keisha car because keisha car doesn't want, to, doesn't want to ride the train by herself either so i stop off at keisha's car stop i grab keisha and we go down then we stop at you know maybe frosty stop to grab her so we can get to the bar in chelsea safely so we're all like in a group together and not traveling alone and you have to factor that into your travel time on a regular basis because of assholes. oh yeah oh yeah for sure for sure. I mean, the Uber it really changed the game because we were able to just call cars. And, and if you if you had a good night, we made money. If you didn't have a lot of if you didn't make any money that night, you you can't afford the Uber and you have to take the train home anyway. But yeah, traveling, traveling in large groups is very was a was a great way to keep safe. Going back to that, this idea that just to live your life, you all had to literally schedule what times you congregated on the train so you could travel in numbers. Talk, talk a little bit about drag's history and activism and speaking out on a lot of the bullshit that's out there in the industry. How have you been able to use drag as a vehicle for political activism as well? Early in my drag, I was doing a lot of politi political activism. I started a group called Drag Queen Weddings for Equality with my friends. We would go to Times Square and we would do these uh, these weddings, these wedding demonstrations where two drag queens would get married by a drag queen pastor. And um, we would hand out wedding invites uh, and the wedding invites would have all this information on the back about injustices to the queer community. And then we would do these these demonstrations where we, where we would shout out more things and give people calls to action and how they can, you know, who they can call, who they can talk to, how they can make a change. There was also some some early arrest in my um, in my drag career, getting a, getting arrested in full drag for my activism. Uh, I was one of those one of those activists, you know. And, and 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 that certainly did not start with me. I mean, if even even back to the Compton cafeteria riots, you know, drag queens, drag artists, gender benders um, have been bucking against the system to create change for people, not just for gay men, but for and not just for queer people, but for black people, for reproductive rights. Uh, immigration rights, even environmental rights. I mean, I know queens right here, you know, saving the wells. You know, like drag queens. If there is a, if there is a somewhere to put our nose in some bit, we will put our contoured nose in your business, honey. <laughs> <laughs> After the break, I want to talk a little bit more about how the added television exposure about the world of drag, um, what the pros and cons are from shows like RuPaul's Drag Race and your show. We're here. This is Beyond the Scenes. We'll be right back. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take the dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. 
And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bob, I want to ask you about the television shows that have stepped into the mainstream now. You know, you have a show like RuPaul's Drag Race, Mm -hmm. which I'll say this, and this is, and I I speak as an alum of Last Comic Standing, third place, 2010, check check the Wikipedia. I feel like adding a competition element to anything makes people more likely to watch it. It makes people more open to immersing themselves in worlds that they don't necessarily care about simply because you're seeing people who are trying to be the best at it. So, like, I feel like RuPaul's Drag Race nailed that coming off the heels of Top Model, essentially, which I feel like was kind of a precursor. I'm not going to say that the two are necessarily connected, but there is similarities. RuPaul has has acknowledged that Drag Race is inspired in part by uh, Top Model. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, like even just like nailed it. You would never watch someone poorly bake a cake. But when you put when they're competing and you have someone hilarious like Nicole Byer doing, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna watch these people fuck up cakes. I would love love to see that. Also, I want to quickly say to you, you, you reminded me, Beyond the Scenes is a great drag name. Beyonda, oh Miss Beyond the Scenes. <laughs> oh, I love her, honey. <laughs> Give it up for Miss Beyond the Scenes, honey. Beyond, and then <laughs> lift up the the. Lift up the back <laughs> skirt or some shit to see beyond is. the scenes. But no, a show like RuPaul's Drag Race, or even We're Here, like I feel like they've all helped push drag into the mainstream and mm-hmm. you showcase a different lens of queer. Like We're Here is different from Drag Race in that it's about the nuance, it's about the emotion. I mean, these are reality shows and we haven't even gotten into scripted stuff like Pose or like, like but it's like, what, what do you think that those shows help do to change the perception of queerness? in america so you know the drag race fan base you think it's just a bunch of gay people watching drag race but it's actually not all gay people a lot of straight people watch drag race and then what, what ends up happening is you have a lot of allies watching drag race and drag race has been on the air for six 15 seasons 16 seasons now um so what happens is these kids who are watching drag race when they were young are now allies adults who have children you know what i mean they're now full-on adults who have children who will also be allies it's kind of what i told one of my friends one of my friends who's like a white uh content creator was like who couldn't understand in 2020 why it was so important to say black lives matter as a white person like why is it so important like why why can't i just do my thing and not say this i was like you don't have to say it you don't have to say it, but i will say this if you do say it once you say black lives matter because because you matter to so many little white girls because you matter to them then they hear you say Black Lives Matter. Now Black Lives Matter to them. Now we have a Black Lives Matter supporter in the house of a Karen or a cop who might end up hurting a black person or doing something like that. So you're basically just spreading the word. You know what I mean? And I think that, um, and I think that's the the situation that we're in right we're in right now. That's how Drag Race has changed the the world of understanding queer people. In my opinion, it's also shows like Pose, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, RuPaul's mm-hmm. Drag Race, Legendary, um, uh, Transformation. Uh, there's so many shows like this that put queer people in front of people who are potential allies and let them see that we're not out in these streets doing some of this ne- weird and nefarious stuff that they think we're trying to do. We're just living our lives. You can't let them people touch you because then you turn into one of them in the Bible yeah. city. You know, I always tell folks I was straight and then I took the vaccine and now look at me. And then I... Then I got a booster, and now I'm non-binary. So watch out for Bob. that Pfizer; it'll get you good. I don't, I don't. <laughs> it's like the intersection of anti-vax and homophobia. I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to laugh. Am I allowed to laugh? Is it You sure? I'll. I'm, I'm gonna Bob laugh up. later. You, you, uh-uh, you can get me off in camera. <laughs> so, 
that's the positive benefits of the show. Let's flip it to the negative side because, you know, a lot of groups, a lot of organizations try to use these shows to springboard and justify their hatred. And like, has the exposure from these shows also opened it up more to hatred and discrimination for, for viewers? You know, oh. like I know, like, like just talk to me about we're here. Like, what's that like just being out on set shooting? Because if I am a Daily Show correspondent at something where, like I was at a pro-gun rally and they was not fucking with your boy. I can imagine, all. I can imagine. So what's that like when you're out in places like Jackson, Mississippi? Yeah. In full drag with cameras. Like what type See, of pushback have you faced with this show? I think the re- what people don't uh, appreciate, appreciate is um the reason why Jordan Klepper can go into these spaces is because they don't know that he is not one of them until he exposes himself. But when you, yeah. but, but you know, but when Roy walks into these sports, when Roy would dream, well, they were like, they're like, we now we yeah. know, we know you ain't one of us. You need to, you, no, need, you have a, a camera, minute, you have boy. a camera, yeah. and you black. No, absolutely not. But they'll go up to Jordan Clapper because he's white and he's tall, and 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 you and women love a tall white man. They will go up there, they'll go up there and tell him their whole life story until they realize that he's and that that's he's why a he's perfect for it. Yeah. And I'm happy. Go do that shit, Clepper. We happily, every time they have a meeting, we're like, we think Clepper should go, <laughs> do, go go do that one. Whenever I'm on the streets, like I just had an instance in Jackson, Mississippi that is on the, the, the second episode of season three of We're Here, where I'm I'm just I'm just walking down the street. Like I'm I'm not even in drag. I'm just walking down the street looking mm, and then all of a sudden they're like oh there well there's one of them they're queers so they start yelling at me from across the street just for walking around like they're throwing completely baseless accusations at me um and they like feel what like this sounds it. like a long this sounds like a because it doesn't sound like these are just one or two syllable slurs you're saying it was spitting whole phrases at you well no they were saying stuff like they, they didn't call me a faggot per se but what they did do they, they called me a um a they called me a pedophile they called me a pervert they called me a creep all and by the way all i was doing was just standing on the street corner i mean i was holding a purse <laughs> so they knew i was gay but i was just standing on the street corner holding a purse and from that from that at from seeing that they they ascertained they came to the conclusion i was a pedophile a pervert i was up to no good i wanted their kids and i was like i'm literally just on the street. i was actually at the time i was we had just finished filming and they hadn't put the cameras down yet because they always just linger around a little bit and i was like oh i'm gonna get some ice cream we're on the street i want to get ice cream i was literally just looking for ice cream and then i got like you know verbally assaulted by these by these guys so i go up to them i was like i'm gonna talk to them i'm gonna actually give these guys a little i'm gonna talk and see what's going on and of course they didn't want to they didn't want they didn't really want to talk they just wanted to uh, sling their um vitriol at me um and call me names but but i was interesting there was maybe like two or three of them but the interesting about them is they actually weren't it's not like they were being being supported even in jackson even the folks in jackson were like can you ch- what what is wrong with y'all like we're not they're like everybody in jackson ain't doing this this is them we're good country folk why are you yeah. doing it like this uh has it gotten beyond that has it been any like type of death threats or threats of violence on any yes. of the shoots or anything? we have had we have had we've had threats of violence for sure on our show and luckily we do have security detail everywhere we go you'll find out in episode one we were going to have a reading of this book shangela my drag sister going to read some books to these kids and then they decided that they didn't want that to happen so they called and threatened to sh- uh they didn't threaten to shoot the place up but they said if you allow this to happen we will show up and we carry and we'll cause a scene so it was like kind of like veiled like that. They were like, "We're not saying we're we're not saying we're gonna kill you, but we're saying that we have guns, we carry, and we'll be there." So basically, they threatened to do what actually happened for real in Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. when there was a drag show and a bunch of right wingers showed up open carrying to intimidate people from ever coming to the show, and the show ultimately was canceled. Yeah, and it, it happened again recently, a couple of days ago. Some people showed up to a, a drag event with guns and weapons. Um, which is so I never thought like my, my adulthood is mostly New York City. So being around people who are like because New Yorkers like I've walked the streets in full drag for, for at practically every hour of the day. I've done something at brunch. I've done something. At, I've, I've gone home at three, 6 a.m. I've done the whole gamut. And New Yorkers don't give a 
fuck. They don't care about you. They're not looking at you. They're not trying to find out what you, they just want to go to their place and get back. These other these people are going out of their way. They're driving miles and miles and miles to uh, do what I guess they think is right. <laughs> so then to that point, then let's talk about how politicians have been able to levy that vitriol and try and turn it into votes and legislation and all of this nonsense. Like we've, we've seen a wave of anti-trans bills across the country. And now mm-hmm. Republican lawmakers in several states are trying to propose legislation to ban minors from even showing up to the drag shows. Like all that reading to the kids, that would be, you would literally go to jail for that. What, mm-hmm. what do you think is the motivation behind those types of bills? And like, why now? Why now all of a sudden does there seem to be an uptick in this type of legislation from the right. Trying to get children banned from drag shows is it is just a sneaky ploy, in my opinion, from right-wing conservatives to make it seem like all drag queens want kids at their shows. Most of us don't want your fucking kids at your show. Does your kid have a dollar? Does your kid have money to tip? We don't want your fucking kid at our fucking show. There are some people who want to read who want to read to kids, but most drag queens are not making I'm gonna, like I don't make any content for children i don't i don't it's, it's like it's like stand-up comedy most stand-up comedians don't want kids at their shows now there are some comedians who make comedy that will be suitable for children yes there are some comedians who make and it, it is a very small it is a tiny group of comedians it's any that brian regan yeah, there's like three niggas out there making making comedy for kids. You know what I mean? But the truth is, most comedians don't want to look down and see a fucking kid at, at their show. And and most drag queens the same way. But when you are, um, but then when we interviews now, even even though I don't want kids at my show, I now have to defend why kids should be allowed at drag shows, even <laughs> though I don't want drag, even though I don't want kids at my fucking show. This is crazy. This is it, it, and it's such a sneaky little tactic. That they use to so now I'm defending something that I don't even want. But I think there are some drag artists who are completely appropriate for children. I'm not one of them. That's why I don't have kids at my shows. Okay, so then if the kid angle is the smoke screen, what do you think is the real reasons for the legislation? Transphobia, transphobia and misogyny and transmisogyny. It is all just thinly veiled homophobia, transphobia, and attempts to push trans people into non-existence. First, they don't want trans people um in the bathrooms. So now 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 you can't use bathroom unless you're at home. You have to wait till you go home to use the bathroom, which is bullshit. We've all had to rush to use the bathroom somewhere, run into somewhere, use the bathroom real quick. And then they say, well, you can't mention any of it at school. If you're if you're trans at school, you better be hiding. So now if you're a teacher, if you're a student, if you're an, if you're a principal, if you're a janitor, you cannot mention that you're trans or even that you know trans people because of things like the don't say gay bill. And now they don't want you to be able to be to work anywhere. They're trying to just push you back into hiding in a closet because they because they don't want to see you in public at all and it starts with the bathroom they push you out of the classroom they push you out of this they push you out of that they push you out of that and by they by the time they push you out of all these places and spaces you are just existing in your home so they don't have to see you the right also now this whole idea about the grooming part of it a lot of these bills around like originally it was the bathroom they're gonna try and get you in the bathroom oh that didn't work okay were they trying to turn your kids into one of them let me tell you right now the most the most dangerous thing that could happen at a drag show is a conservative might show up with a gun and kill someone it's not the drag queens it's not the people coming to see the drag queen the dangerous most dangerous thing at a gay bar is that a conservative might show up with a gun and fucking kill you it's needless to say this type of rhetoric from the politicians from from the right wing incites a degree of violence against this community. Like like even just this year, I think I got the stats right, it over 120 protests and significant threats in 47 states so far this year, just mm-hmm. against LGBTQ and drag events this year. What is the response to that from the drag community? Is it just security? Like what can you do to continue to foster a safe environment where people can be themselves? Well, I think that um, you know when 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 things happen like what what like uh, what happened in this recent shooting in this in the in the, in the gay club recently and in the Walmart no, Colorado Springs the Colorado Springs and in that Walmart mm-hmm. they call them these shootings but they don't call them terrorists I don't know why they never get they never get labeled as terrorists it is terror it's domestic terror it's an attempt to scare you out of out of leaving your home again remember the whole goal is to get you to stay away so they never have to see you. 
You can't even go hang out in spots, places that are just for you. Now they want you to just hang out just in your home, go away, never be seen out in public ever anywhere. And the guy who did the shooting, Colorado Springs, you know, his dad came forward and is saying stuff like, I'm just so glad they found that he's not gay. When I heard he was in a gay club, I was just mad that he, I thought he was going to be gay. It's like, you're not worried that your son killed five people, allegedly. You're mad that he might have been gay in the process. Like, baby, get your, get your priorities together. And, you know, drag artists are not going anywhere. So I hate to break the news to you, Mary, but drag has been around for a very long time before anyone who's alive now has been breathing. Drag has been around for a very, very, very long time. Gender bending has been around for a very long time. Trans people have been around for a very, very long time. And, 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 and we're not going anywhere anytime soon. You have given us more than enough of your time. The show is We Are Here. You can see that on HBO, HBO Max. Bob the Drag Queen, thank you for going beyond the scenes with us. My pleasure. And um, please check out uh, Roy and his new drag career and his new drag name, Beyond the Scenes. <laughs> After the break, I'll be joined by guests Channing Joseph and Frank DeCaro, who will give us some insight into the origins and history of drag. We'll be right back. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond the Scenes. Now, I just chatted with Bob the Drag Queen about his personal journey and the importance of representation on screen and all of the attacks that conservatives have on drag and that entire culture. But now, let's talk about the long history of drag. I'm joined now by two guests who are going to help break this down for us. First, I'm joined by journalist and professor of journalism at Princeton University, Channing Joseph. Channing, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Roy. Thanks for having me. Might I add, Channing, your headphones are stunning. <laughs> Thank you. I'm also joined by the author of Drag, combing through the big wigs of show business, Frank DeCaro. Frank, how you doing? Thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here. Now, this question is for both of you, but Frank, I'll throw it to you first. Give us an overview of the origins of drag and just where the term drag comes from. Let's just start with the basics. Well, a lot of times they say that, that the word drag comes from a, a woman's clothes dragging on the ground. I don't know if I believe that. And, and hopefully Channing has, has a better perspective on that. But I will say that as long as a guy has been on the stage and as, as long as being on a stage or being in public has been popular entertainment and drawn a crowd, somebody has been cross-dressing, to use the oldest possible term you can think of for that. Shakespearean uh, tradition has men playing female roles. Kabuki tradition has that. The English uh, pantomimes, which still exist today, every holiday season, has the pantomime dame in it. There's always was someone dressing either a, a man dressing as a woman or a woman dressing as a man when we were thinking in the most binary of terms. But th that's always been a part of entertainment. And the drag queen, let's say that, the sort of multimedia drag queen, has existed at least 
since the, the early 20th century. And, per, and perhaps even before there's evidence now that the first drag queen may have been a, a freed enslaved person. So the, and that's a whole other thing that we're all looking at now and wondering more about. But there was a guy in the early in the teens, the 19, uh, about 1912, who got his own Broadway theater named after him. And he was one of the highest paid entertainers in show business named Julian Eltinge. And everyone kind of looks at Julian Elton as sort of the grandmother of them all because she was kind of the RuPaul of 1912. She had a magazine to give women tips on how to look beautiful. She was in movies playing, you know, a spy who goes behind enemy lines dressed as a woman. She was on Broadway doing, singing her own songs in drag and uh, and was, was hugely popular. And uh, so the, anyone that says drag is sort of a new phenomenon is is really speaking an untruth. There's a popular meme going around now that says if you know that that you've always been entertained by drag, and then they show, of course, Tootsie and Bosom Buddies and Some Like It Hot. And every movie that that we've ever seen in the 20th century with with drag in it, and so like you can't say, oh my God, these drag queens are so dangerous when you've uh, been laughing at them for a hundred years plus. Channing, fill in some of the gaps there, like in that old school sense, because, you know, I know there was also a time where women weren't allowed to perform. Could you believe that women wasn't allowed at a time to do a thing? And men had to take on the roles of women in theater because we just did, we don't know where to find any women actors. I guess I'll put on some lipstick. Absolutely. So one of the things that most people don't realize is that um, the way we use the term drag today is very loose. We're, we're thinking, as Frank pointed out, in binary terms, a man dressing as a woman, woman dressing as a man. And uh, it's sort of applied indiscriminately, whether we're talking about, as Frank pointed out, uh, Shakespearean theater or Kabuki, um, we're talking, we're, we're calling it drag, when those are actually separate traditions. And uh, it's important, I think, to specify the, the specific uh, differences between those cultural cultural traditions. There's actually an American tradition of, of drag, which does go back to the culture of, of African-Americans, formerly enslaved African-Americans in Washington, D.C. Um, in the 1880s. Um, and from that point to today, we can we can trace the the uh, origin of uh, the ball ballroom culture and voguing um, and all the way to RuPaul's Drag Race, it's sort of has maintained the same basic format in terms of uh, basically a competition where uh, queer, queer Black people meet and celebrate um, celebrate each other and, and compete for the prize. But um, back then, uh, the first drag queen was named William Dorsey Swan. And in the culture of D.C. after the Civil War, there was this so there was this tradition of celebrating freedom. Of course, you're you're now free. You're no longer enslaved. Celebrate yeah, yeah, your turn life. Up. <laughs> turn up, yeah, yeah. And, and how they turned war. up? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, in that in that period of time, one of the big ways it celebrated was to um, was to have a parade called Emancipation Day. And Emancipation Day in D.C. There were these beautiful women who would who would essentially wear these uh, usually flower covered dresses or um, or crowns and they'd be part of the parade. They'd represent the embodiment, the personification of liberty for black people. And they were called queens. The first drag queen, William Dorsey Swan, actually dubs himself the first drag queen because the balls were already being called drag, drag balls or drag parties or drag dances that were, or just drags. But uh, he decided to say, I am the queen of this ball. So actually adopting the term queen is a way of, of connecting um, the sort of celebration of queerness with emancipation from enslavement. It's actually, there's always been this connection. It's in the United States context between African-American emancipation and drag, which is not something that people talk about. Um, so that's something that that I like to point out um, because as we know, to this day, there's, all, there's, there's lots of discussion about drag queens uh, misappropriating or, or um, uh, arrogating to themselves, you know, various uh, 
aspects of black culture or black women's expression. And actually, <laughs> that's been, that's been that's been <laughs> dating back over a hundred years. You've cracked a can on something that I wanna that I wanna go back to for a second because I want to talk about some of the common misconceptions and stereotypes about drag that you wish laymen like myself were a little more informed on. And Frank, I want to get your answer on this as well. But first, let's go back to the distinction between cross-dressing and drag. I'm from Alabama, and I worked on a side of town that was the more freewheeling side of Birmingham called Five Point South. And that was my first introduction as a teenager into every other culture from skate culture to gay culture to tattoos and nose print. So Everybody was just called a cross-dresser. This is Birmingham in the 80s. There was not the level of specificity and understanding that we have now. So let's just start with cross-dressing and drag and what the differences are there. And then what are some of the other misconceptions you think people get wrong about the culture? I think cross-dressing, it has been a a pejorative term, um, but it is is a descriptive term. It it describes a sort of conception of, of a man taking on a woman's a woman's appearance, um, and it actually applies to different kinds of cross-dressing. It applies to African traditions and uh, kabuki and Shakespearean theater. All those really could be described as cross-dressing, whereas um, drag is more. Um, at least now, it's more of a celebration of um, gender expression, and I think breaking out of gender roles, right? I think if you look at, for example, Shakespearean theater, for whatever reason, they didn't hire women for the roles. It wasn't about, it wasn't a decision based on uh, self-expression or a desire to explore explore your gender or explore gotcha. uh, ways that, how, how you want to see yourself, right? Or how you see yourself. Um, it was it was more sort of, there, there were other reasons why men were dressing as, wearing dresses yeah. and so on. Yeah. Whereas Martin drag Lawrence. is more of a celebration. Okay, so like Martin Lawrence dressing up as Shanene was not Martin identifying with his own gender and expression. It was just, now I'm going to put on a wig and some lipstick and crack some jokes. At least not not as far as we know. (laughs) 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 Well, there. I was going to say, before that, there was someone like Flip Wilson. And while it was done, you know, in prime time, Flip Wilson, for people who don't know, he was the, the... first African-American comedian performer to have his own variety show that was a hit. I mean, there were others who had who had done specials and who had done short things, but Flip was on for like four years. And his drag character of that era. Yeah. Yeah. He was friendly and a storyteller, but he was he would do uh, this character named Geraldine Jones, who had a boyfriend named Killer. But that never stopped her from flirting with every man from and I'm not kidding. Bill Cosby to O.J. Simpson to Bing Crosby, okay? <laughs> he, he was hugely popular. But what he did that was so different from Shanene was he played a character who believed she was beautiful and kind of was sexy and was sort of a feminist character. And people flipped out over that in, in terms of they liked it, but also because it really was different. She wore poochie print dresses. She had great gams. She she was kind of the person who influenced RuPaul in many ways. And Ru admits that. Ru's my age. And so, you know, I mean, it was, um, you know, she was watching the same TV I was watching. And Flip kind of was the introduction to drag for a lot of people. What's different and what's important about him, and it goes to the misconceptions about drag, is he was not making fun of women at all. And I think that some people want to say that, oh, drag is misogynist. And some of it, when it's played, like, look how ugly I am. And every comedian is guilty of of doing that at some point. But he, a lot of drag comes out of an appreciation for female tropes and for female characteristics, but then it exaggerates them to to Jessica Rabbit proportions. You know, I mean, it's it, nobody really, look, you know, no woman really looks like Bianca Del Rio unless she's in drag too. You know, I mean, it's like, and now uh, uh, Channing, as you know, you can be a cisgender woman, you can be a cisgender, you can be any, you can come out of the womb, whatever, but if you've got too much fabulous, you could be a drag queen now, and and it doesn't matter what your plumbing looks like. And thank heaven for, as long as when that light goes on, you're funny and glamorous, it doesn't matter what your junk looks like. And that's kind of wow. an exciting thing, I think. 
I, I think that's fabulous. And I, I, um, I agree with, with Frank, um, that, uh, you know, performance, performers like, like, uh, Flip Wilson were really important. And I think, you know, looking at, looking at that aspect of, of drag, like the, the performative aspect, it hasn't always been performance for like a public audience. That's one point, which I'll get to, but the, the, uh, the important point I think is performers, performances like Geraldine Jones, they were important because, um, I think they were part of, you know, at least for a couple of decades of uh, beginning of the 20th century when drag balls um, sort of became more open to the public. They were a way of showing, I think, straight cisgender people how fabulous you could be, uh, you know, how fabulous a man could be wearing heels and wearing a wig and so on, um, that it it wasn't purely about comedy. It was also about showing confidence and, 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 um, showing sort of just bending a little bit, the, the expectations of gender roles. And now I think, you know, they're completely bent, which I think is a positive thing. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, when, when, um, if you look back, like for example, the 19th century balls, the balls from the 1880s, those were secret events. Those were people getting together in each other's houses, putting on a show for for each other. It was a community thing. It only really became uh, sort of a, a thing that the general public was allowed into in the in the 20s or so. And at that point, um, people were really, you know, people were interested to see that there were. Thousands of people would gather to see drag balls because there was such hunger for it. And I guess, you know, it's still the same way. People are hungry to see how gender can be reinterpreted and, and expressed in different ways that that they have been taught were wrong or um, immoral and so on. I certainly was taught that. I think that's what gets to why people love drag is through the artifice, you get to this tremendous truth about humanity and you all but it's also incredibly entertaining it's not like a lesson in gender studies it's it it's sort of or it is but it's sort of it talk about the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down it's really entertaining and you're like oh wait a minute we're not all uh you know there is it's showing you the the, the spectrum of gender in, in a way and and you're you know but in a safe way and not only was were drag balls a safe space but you had people like milton burl who was the thought you know he's mr television when they turned the tvs on he was the guy that got people to buy tv and he did drag almost every week and he said oh yeah when i was a kid i'd sneak into the drag balls and so you're sort of like wait a minute so you're 12 or 15 and you're you know you're sneaking into drag balls you know and typically you know stealing you know as <laughs> as <laughs> as so much entertainment is it's sort of like oh good i'll get the gig because i'm the white guy but but i'll go learn everything <laughs> you know from the from the black performance as so many people do and did. So when you talk about researching for your book and Shannon, you low-key being very humble because I know a lot of that swan research that we even know now in the zeitgeist is because you went to digging and all finding it, out the it. truth about that person. Probably, what was that, about 10, 15 years ago, you went <laughs> digging. So both of you are very versed in the history of drag, but in your research of the history of this culture, how does the black and LGBTQ plus community fit into that history? I, I know we talked a little bit about D.C., but give me some other ways where they fit into that culture and or if there's been erasure. Well, I think that one of the one important thing to point out is, you know, and just just, just to, to piggyback from off of what Frank was saying, drag balls have been a safe place for lots of people to express themselves and and to be seen and to and to meet each other and and to make connections and so on but they've also been really dangerous for a lot of folks too um you know over and over again throughout history particularly i mean certainly in the early 20th century and 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 the 19th century drag balls were constantly um, surveilled and raided by the police and people were thrown in jail, oftentimes on really trumped up charges or, or just no charges. We just don't, we just think you're a suspicious person. We're going to throw you in jail because you're, you're a man wearing a dress. Um, so it's the, the, the safety part is also the other side of it is that it's been a really dangerous thing. People have, people have felt a need to express themselves in this particular way. And, 
Um, the authorities have always looked at it as a sort of dangerous thing. And in, in, in the in Swan's era, one time he was arrested and thrown in jail, and um, the prosecutor, you know, sort of admitted in the prosecution documents, the prosecutor admitted, well, typically we wouldn't we we wouldn't uh, send send the, send Swan to you know prison for what we what we charged him with, which was keeping a disorderly house, which is something to usually it's something pity. to do with prostitution, oh, yeah, sex work. But he said. We're, we're trying to keep him off the streets because of his quote evil example to the community and um and essentially says you know because because he is involved with with uh sex with other men so the authorities looked at swan's drag balls this is swan the queen of drag swan's drag balls as 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 something that people found so alluring that they'd want to copy because that's why he was an evil, an evil example to the community. Um, yeah, you're going to pollute the community, which you're going to pollute the community. And, and, and that is exactly what we're seeing today with, with, uh, with many, many politicians and, and other, and other, other folks, you know, protesting drag, drag, uh, drag brunches and drag story time and um, protesting, um, you know, discussions of, of being trans in schools. Um, and it's, it's a similar kind of, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it is the same kind of, you know, policing, literally policing, um, and also culturally policing the, the ways that we express ourselves and, and, and who we are. If you don't fit into those roles, it's considered dangerous. And, and we're, and the straight cis people are still really scared that, that their kids are going to be queer like us. <laughs> so then when we talk about that activism and that resistance culture within this community, Frank, let's go back 50 years ago to Stonewall in New York City and talk a little bit about that as being a bit of a pivot point in terms of drag becoming a little more mainstream or a little more in the face of people because it merged perfectly with the emergence of disco music as well. So yeah, it's exactly. Well, it's interesting to me because Not I think that I'm drag... calling all disco gay. I'm just saying that you can dance to that shit no matter what your orientation <laughs> is. Some good ass music. Keep going, Frank. No, I was. You can say di- my next book is about the history of disco. So yes, it wow. was gay. It was wow. <laughs> well, but it's wow. it'll be my take on it, you know, and then. And then Channing, you do the actual study of the stuff. I'll do the, the, here's the buffet of the glitter. And then you serve the entree of the meat and potatoes and show them what oh, they no. really do. Oh no. <laughs> I just make the dessert. But, uh, I was going to say. spice on it at least? Yes, you can do anything you want. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that the Stonewall for people who don't, I mean, more people know now than used to, but there are a lot of people who still go, what is that? Stonewall was the turning point in the beginning of the gay rights movement in America. Uh, and there were things before that, the Black Cat and, and Compton's uh, cafeteria out in California. But Stonewall is the moment in 1969 where gays fought back. And despite what some mainstream movies will tell you, it was not the cute little white kid from the Midwest who was throwing bricks. It was trans people who didn't even call themselves that. They call themselves transvestites and activists, not even trans people, really. But it was people like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and uh, um, who's the famous that Stormy Galarvery. That was the name. I was like, Channing, help me. The, the drag king who was the, of all. Um, they were the ones who were doing it. And honestly, with any movement, the people who have the least and the most to lose at the same time are the ones who are the bravest. The ones who don't fit in the closet and also are like, I'm not going in there. I've seen what, how yeah. dark it is in the closet. It stinks. Yeah. I'm not going to be in there. Um, but the ones who really... Uh, you know, who who can't hide often tend to be the people who wouldn't hide even if they could. They, they tend to, that personality type of, oh no, I'm not taking, I'm not a second class citizen. Look at me, I'm fabulous. You know, and they're they're wearing their, their look on the street. Those are the ones who often are the bravest and the toughest. And that's why when some of, you know, with what's going on now, you're sort of like, 
I would pick on the drag queen if I were you. You know, that's like, that's like you know, it's like if you're going to go, you know, I wouldn't heckle the insult comic. You know, it's a, it's sort of they'll they'll shish kebab you. You know, it's sort of it's like you think you're picking on the weak one, but it's like they could outrun you. They can outrun you in platform heels, you know, and 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 then take one off and beat the crap out of you with it. You know, they, they these are tough people and yet they look so glamorous and so beautiful while they're doing it. But um, I think that that was what happened at Stonewall was the ones throwing the bricks at first were and, and then forming a kick line is that and I'm going to use the word gay the way I like to use it as if it's a great thing the greatest thing you could say what's the gays they formed a kick line in the street so they're doing a rockette number against the police <laughs> that is the gayest thing you can possibly do and yet it's sort of like the number it's not only gorgeous legs that's like 20 middle fingers, you know? I mean, it's just, it is the ultimate. It's like, oh, you want us to be gay? They would oh, God, have rather them thrown a brick. The police would have rather a brick be thrown at them. Because uh -huh. yeah, how do you react to that? If you're sort of like, oh yeah, you're gonna, we're gonna get arrested, but well, if I go, I'm gonna at least look good doing it. And then you start a kick line. That, that to me is the gayest, most powerful thing. It's sort of like, oh, I'll show you. And that's why, I mean, drag today is leading the, the cultural conversation. But I honestly, the Republicans want to shut it down. And the Proud Boys are sort of like, you know who you're taking on? It's like these these people, do, these are not mincing F words. You know, I mean, they, you know, they're they're uh, they, these queens will kick your ass. They'll clean your clock. You know, I mean, they, they know how to do it because they've been threatened from the moment they they came out of the closet or, or emerged from the womb, perhaps. So when we talk about the middle fingers to the authorities then versus the middle fingers to politicians now and a lot of the policies that have starting to be passed to to suppress this this type of culture, I don't think you're going to be able to legislate out anything that has real influence on society. Talk to me a little bit, and Channing, I'll start with you. Talk to me a little bit about the influence that drag has had on beauty and fashion. I already talked to Bob mm. about television, but let's talk about pop culture and just general beauty mm. and fashion and the way drag has influenced that. Even music, Hill. You know, the first thought that I had when you asked the question is uh, Beyonce, of course. Um, you know, in her, her latest album, Renaissance, there are many references to balls and to, you know, the category is and tens across the board. And uh, if you're listening to the lyrics of the songs, uh, like like Alien Superstar and like Heated. Um, and so it sort of shows that like an artist at that at that level is is engaging with with drag, uh, with drag culture, history of drag culture. And as well as um, I think. I think drag as a, as a influence on beauty has just made it more okay to experiment with you know makeup with with different forms of attire um, for all people. All that. Right, it's it's made it okay for men to be a little more fem fem and, and more fabulous, and it's made it okay for women to be much more fabulous <laughs> if they want. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is drag the reason why I have like? Be wearing avocado mask at night some nights for my is that the reason you know, I know the word exfoliate? You could probably you could probably do a thesis draw, drawing the line between those. <laughs> when RuPaul got the Mac Cosmetics uh gig in the in the early nineties, that was shocking to a lot of people. A lot of this stuff was shocking back and now it takes a lot to shock anybody. But back in the day when RuPaul's suddenly like, oh wait, look you know what i'm going to be the the spokesmodel for uh, viva glam and she looked gorgeous you know the drag bus has left you just got to get on it to stand in the way or try to fight it will ultimately be unsuccessful and it's also short-sighted because it's sort of do you you really the the upsetting thing to me when people protest drag queen story hour is like so that that those little kids that feel different for whatever reason and like sparkle whether whatever their gender they don't get the same treat. They don't get to be happy. They don't get to see someone in a book. They don't, you know, it's very upsetting to me to, to see lives being threatened, drag lives and gay lives, queer lives uh, being threatened 
when it's preposterous. You know, if drag queens are groomers, it's like, well, they're not groomers. They're hairstylists. They're makeup artists. They're not. They're not groomers in the in the pedophile sense. They're groomers, and that's it. Your nails will look fabulous by the end of it. You know, I mean, get it's stupid. It's just a dumb argument to say they're groomers. It's like, yeah, that's that's why people do drag. It's like, no. That's why clowns become clowns and lock you in a crawl space and then, or eat you or whatever clowns do. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, those are two it, different people, yeah. two different yeah. people. <laughs> I think queer folks are still a minority, but we're just a powerful, influential minority because of, because of how badass we are. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I always, well, I always say in 1969, when Stonewall happened, it was sort of a surprise to people that suddenly that queer folks could fight back. And the reality is there, there was all kinds of unseen invisible work that had to get done to build a community that felt confident enough to fight back. The, so there was decades of work behind, behind that decision to fight back on that day. And now we've had another 50 years of organizing to the point where we're like, there's no way we're not, we're not going back in the closet. We're not going to go back backwards. So yes, they're protesting, but we're, we're not only a cultural force, we're just too, I think, too powerful to organize uh, a community now. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's irrational to, to uh, go against us. <laughs> what do you all think the future of drag uh, looks like where does this uh, go because if this small uh, ball this pebble was rolling down the hill and now it's a big boulder where does this go next how soon to the drag president is what i'm asking <laughs> <Let's go. laughs> oh that's a great one um <laughs> but no, do we have to give rudy <laughs> do we have yeah, to give rudy well, giuliani credit for dressing in drag as rudia i hope not <laughs> i don't really <laughs> Because he was an ugly drag queen. That was an ugly drag queen. Yeah, his but, mascara uh, be running. That boy is <laughs> From crazy. everywhere. Yeah. It's hard <laughs> to get mascara out here, but he managed to, to, uh, to do it. <laughs> I think it's going to look like uh, just, just this amazing buffet of talent. I think that it's going to come down to how good are you at it, not uh, what, you know, whether you're dressed as a man or a woman or a horror icon where you're covered in blood or you're covered in sequins. I think it can be anything. I think uh, it's drag kids who, who are so cool with themselves at eight or 10 that they're, they're, they're dressing in drag as and performing, not just, Oh mommy, I feel different, but they're really like, Oh, I'm going to be fierce and go do this. And you know, the, the, the thing that, the moment in my life when I realized stuff was changing was when I was speaking to a group of young people and I said, well, I came out when I was 16 in 1978. And the kid said, why did you wait so long? And I, and I was like, oh my God, things have really changed. 16, I was like in the advanced placement program for gay in, in the late 70s. It was like, I, you know, you're, you know what you, you're gay. I've known forever. Of course I'm a gay, you know, and, um, I think the future of drag is is going to be gorgeous and fabulous and diverse. That's one of the best things about drag, too. I, I didn't say this before. You know, people are always saying we have to, in entertainment, we have to strive for diversity. With drag, all you have to do is tell the truth. If you, t you know, and maybe it's that way with everything. But if you just show who was doing cool stuff, you don't have to go looking for diversity because it's all there in your face. It's, go it's gorgeous. It's like something everybody was participating in in their own wonderful way. So it's not forced in any way. Just get out there and tell the truth and you'll have people of every background and color and creed and, and sequin type, <laughs> you know, doing their thing. <laughs> Channing, so. what's it look like to you? I think um, drag is a huge factor in um, what will become a complete transformation of how we think about sex and gender in the future. And how we talk about sex and gender, how we think about it will com has already completely changed, right? But in the future, it will be so core to who we are to talk about um, diversity of being non-binary or trans, 
uh, or the, the diversity of gender expression, all those, you know, we'll have new words for it because the words always change, right? I think, uh, but but it will be completely transformed. One of the things I think that uh, most people sort of don't think about or realize is like, it's not just that there used to be old words and now we have cool words. Um, like you, in, in Swan's time, it was, you know, you were a queen or you weren't. It was about what you were actually, it was about whether you were participating in balls or not. Um, whether you were winning the balls, whether you were a queen. And then later you were, um, you know, uh, other scholars talk about like what, uh, whether you were a fairy or a pansy. And then sort of after World War II, it became this homosexual, heterosexual slicing. And now we're, you know, now we're much more diverse in terms of being pan or fluid. And everybody is Binary. sort of becoming more exactly non-binary, transgender, queer, gender fluid. We have so many more options. And I think in the future, we will either have many more options than that, or it will just be so part of who we are that it becomes irrelevant in a sort of way. And it's it's important, I think, um, just to realize that we're, we're we're strong enough to get through this, and we will. And, and um, no matter what they do, we, all of the way we think about about our our gender and our and our sexuality will will completely transform. Well, I hope that the future of drag does not include more of the ignorance and laws and hatred that your community has been dealing with. The two of you are on the spearhead of educating dumb motherfuckers on what the right <laughs> things are and how to be more knowledgeable citizens. <laughs> I thank you, Channing. I thank you, Frank. And also, shout out to Bob for coming on earlier. That's all the time we have for today. Play my theme music. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sixteenth Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously. And that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.